So once again, this week, church, we are continuing our series, Understanding the Gospel, God Rescues Us by Grace Through Faith. And this week, we are back, obviously, here in the New Testament. Last week, we saw the gospel foreshadowed and symbolized so beautifully and compellingly in Zechariah chapter 3. But now here this week, we will see it said so clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. And concerning this passage you just heard read, this probably is, in my opinion, the most step-by-step logical paragraph on what the gospel is in the whole whole New Testament. It, It probably is. And I say that because in the original, in verses 1 through 10 here, they're actually one long sentence written by Paul. He does that sometimes. And in this long sentence, he really does use order and flow and logic going step by step to explain to them back then and to us still today the good news, the gospel of of who we are on our own, but then what God did for us and then even why God did what he did. And that being said, church, this really is an excellent passage and it's honestly just so helpful that God has this in his word for us. But all that said, let's just dive in together and let God's word speak for itself. But before we even do that, very briefly, as for our outline for how we'll go through this passage together this morning. So we'll be going verse by verse here. And as, as we do so, we're going to have three clear sections together. Three clear sections. And I've already kind of mentioned them, and they're pretty simple to understand. Because first, we're going to be in verses 1 through 3. And there we'll see who we truly are on our own. Which then second will lead us into verses 4 through 6 where we'll see what God did for us. Which then third and finally will fittingly lead us to verses 7 through 10 where we'll see why God did what he did for us. And so it's that simple and that step by step. First, who we are on our own. And then second, what God did for us. And then third, why. And so us, God, and why. But that said, now let's just dive in and begin this together, church. And again, here we're just in our first section in verses 1 through 3, and we're seeing who we really are on our own, meaning who we all are apart from God's grace in Jesus Christ. And before we actually even read any of these verses here, just quickly, we first all need to know that in what we're about to hear, this truly is a description of each one of us, each one of us. And we're going to see that because actually verse 1 even starts with, and you were. And then in verse 3, it clarifies with, and we all. And then the section even finishes at the end of verse 3 with that phrase, like the rest of mankind. And so before we even read this, we need to know this truly is each one of us apart from Christ. Meaning we're going to need to see ourselves in this section. But that said, let's now just begin in verse 1. The paragraph starts like this. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And we'll stop there in the middle sentence. So famously, God's word here begins by telling us, quote, and you were dead. Dead. And that might sound jarring to us, and it's supposed to, but what does it mean? Well, in basic, there's two huge things going on here with this idea of being dead. First, I think the best way of starting to explain this idea of being dead is to quickly hear something that will actually come up later in this same book of Ephesians. Because later, when God's word is talking about people who who haven't returned to God through Jesus, in Ephesians 4.18, the Bible says this, quote, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated or separated from the life of God, separated from the life of God. And that's really the main idea here in being dead. God is truly the source of 
life, true life, knowing him and rightly reflecting him and and loving him and being loved by him and, and letting that affect how we live and create in his world and love others. That's all true life. That's how we were made to be. And yet in our sin, we're separated from God, which has effects in all of that dead. So that's the first thing here about being dead. But not only that, but then second, this word dead, church, also points us to our ability or abilities to then get ourselves out of that mess that we're in. And this is important as well because almost every other religion in history holds that yes, something's not right with us and that yes, we want to get back to who we're supposed to be. But it really is only God's honest word in Christianity that comes in and makes it even more clear and drastic. And that's that, yes, we are all like this, but also because of what we're like, we actually can't do anything to solve our issue on our own. Because on our own, being separated from God's life, it's not like we can limp our way back to God by doing enough goodness. Nor is it that you and I can think about how to do our best and restore ourselves back to who we were designed to be. Instead, on our own, we're, we're dead. And really, being spiritually dead is the picture here. Right? Like, like Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 37, if you know that story, with the valley full of dry bones. So Old Testament and New Testament, I hope you know that that's, that's us. And if you know that story, you know that God in that story asks Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Right, and the answer to that question is, well, on their own, if they're really bones, which they were, clearly no. Right? I mean, a bunch of human bones can't make themselves come alive. They're dead bones. But also the answer to that is, and yet, if God decides to miraculously make these dry human bones somehow come to life, then he can. The bones in themselves, of course, can't. We can't. But God can, and God does that in the picture in Ezekiel 37, and that was always supposed to be a symbol of the gospel. But anyway, so that's the second thing about here being what it means to be dead. And and quickly, just for you and me, we do really need to pause and just make sure we really get that. Because let's be clear then, according to the Bible, we are not just spiritually weak, nor are we just spiritually broken. Because if those were the only things that's true, then we could perhaps at least do some little things for God on our own, right? To impress him or to perhaps earn just a little bit of place with him. And if so, then honestly, Christianity would just be another religion to add to the many religions that have existed and still exist. But that's not true. Instead, we are spiritually dead. Right, so that's his first word, dead here in verse 1, and it's important, but God's word doesn't only just say that about us here in verse 1, right? Because we are dead, but specifically we're dead in the trespasses and sins, and, and that phrase now leads us in a way to the rest of these verses, especially because we might hear this idea that we're dead, and then assume that, well, if we're really dead, then we don't do much. But right away here in verse 1, we see that's not true, because we're actually dead in trespasses and sins, But continuing on, what does that even look like? Well, now let's continue on into verse 2. So look down at your Bibles, verse 2, and we'll read verse 1 just because for context. So verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And we'll stop there. 
And so now, as you can see, there's two main verbs here. It's interesting for what you and I were like when we were dead in our sins. First is that verb to walk, right? To walk. And that'll show up to conclude our passage as well. So remember that. But in basic, the idea of walking in the, in the, in the Bible is just this idea of how you and I go throughout our lives. It's that simple but helpful of a picture. And so first, when we're spiritually dead, it does lead to a certain way of walking. And then second, the other verb that's used here to describe us when we're dead, you can see it, is that verb following. Following. And that's important because we're not only walking, but as we walk, apparently we're not as independent as we think we are. Rather, when we're dead, we're all followers as well. Followers and who or, or what are we following? Well, three things are listed in these first three verses. Three things that we all follow knowingly or unknowingly, in our spiritual deadness. And two of them are here in verse two. Number one, as you can see, on our own, we follow the course of this world. The course of this world. Meaning back then and still today, the time period in the world that we live in is mainly about us and exalting self and just seeking whatever you like and wherever you can find it. And the world is also full of just all this earning my way to God typical religion. And the point is, number one, when we're spiritually dead, separated from God's true life because of our sins, we just follow all of that in the world. And it just makes sense. And then, number two, we are also said to follow, quote, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And in short, those phrases in God's word here are just now a reference to the devil. To the devil. And now the idea there is, and basically the air that we breathe in this fallen world, we not only are influenced and follow this world in general, but truly God's word says even behind and in all of that, there is real spiritual intelligent darkness. I mean, it's God's word that tells us that Jesus believed that Satan and his fallen angels are real and they truly hate God and they want to lead us and as many people as possible away from God. That's their one goal. And so dead in our sins, without Christ, we just naturally follow their anti-God ways as well. Whether we know it or not. And so that's verse 2, which finally on this section, I know this is a lot, leads us into verse 3. So now look there now on who we really are on our own. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So there's two huge things in that verse. First is that third and last thing, right, that we follow in our deadness. So we naturally follow, number one, the course of this world, and we, number two, usually unknowingly follow the ways of the devil. But then third, now here, notice, we're not doing those other things reluctantly or even haphazardly. Rather, what makes our deadness so substantial and tragic is that we basically can boil down our lives apart from Christ to living, quote, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And I know hearing that, you may think that that doesn't seem to be most people or that that maybe wasn't really you before Christ. But let me just say it was. Because these words are supposed to be more of a sweeping statement than honestly they may sound to us at first. And I say that because to be clear, passions of the flesh here is not just talking about sexual sins. 
It can and it often does include those, of course. But when you and I probably hear passions combined with the word flesh, we may only or mainly think that. But that's not all that's here. Rather, these words originally are much more broad. Because simply stated, they just mean that we just live and do and tend to walk in our lives just focused on what we want and what we like and what we think feels good. Meaning we naturally now in our sin don't really think about God or what forever really matters or who we were designed to truly be or honestly what's more satisfying than earthly temporary pleasures. Rather, we mainly in our lives just pursue what we want. What feels right and is good to us. And we carry out the desires, which is actually just a broad word again, the desires of the body and the desires of the mind. And quickly, let me just say, the fact that God's word here does say desires of body and mind is really important. And this might be really applicable for some of you in here because we need to know sins are not just bodily things. Being dead here is not just a bodily thing. Rather, this all really does deeply affect our thinking and our minds as well. And so God's word is saying here, we don't just carry out external sinful acts, but also in our minds naturally, in how we now think and even reason about ourselves and about our world, we will do anything to ultimately snuff out God and make it about us and humanity. That's carrying out the desires of what our minds now want. And so that said, that's then the third thing we follow here in our deadness. We just follow desires and what we want, which finally on this section leads to the second other big thing here in verse three, and that's how it ends. And you can see that's how because of all this, we all quote, were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And that's supposed to be sobering because the idea of children of wrath, like sons of disobedience from verse two, that phrase back then just carried the idea of this is what characterizes us. And so the point is, all of this being us, and this all willfully being us, let's be clear about that, this is not something that's forced upon us, this following of the world and the devil and whatever we want. We like all of this. But this being us, the proper, just, and fitting response from God is wrath. Wrath. And wrath, not because God is bad, but because we are. Because just consider this. So God has his creation, his perfect, beautiful creation, including us originally. And we're the ones who come in and are being nasty to him, downplaying him, nasty to one another and to his world. And so because God loves his world and his, and his just, he must have wrath. J just like to use a very quick illustration, if you were to see someone else really being nasty to or even abusing someone you loved, it would be wrong for you not to feel anger at it. Because we all know when you really love someone, real wrong do done toward them must be responded to with righteous judgment and anger. Indifference in that moment would be unloving. And so the point of this verse is really that deserving of wrath is you and me on our own. In this universe, in reference to the living God. And so church, that's verses one through three. And I know that's heavy. I know we spent a lot of time on those verses, but we did so, well, first, because they're true. But then second, and more important, brothers and sisters, let's be so clear, for, for every one of us in here, we, we need to know that we will not ever really deeply consider Jesus 
or truly love God and his good news unless we first really understand and agree with things like verses in one through three here. We each need to truly feel that, man, that's me personally. Because if we don't, the rest of this paragraph, the rest of the gospel won't mean that much to us. And really, if we had more time, we could get into this. But on this specifically, I do hope we all know we do all live in a unique time in history, unique time in history, because for most of history, all over the globe, you can read about it, people more so kind of just understood this. It was more of a common thing in history for people to realize that they were at least not upright, that they, that they were somewhat off, that they needed something or someone probably to help them which is why so many religions were, were popular, and it's why people did whatever they did to offer to their gods or things like that, all because they more naturally in history had an innate sense of this in some ways. But I hope you know, for you and me, we do live in a culture on both sides of the political spectrum, a culture so focused on the goodness of humanity and exalting us, right? And everything is so clean and pretty and honestly almost fake and we have so much technology and we rarely see the awful things like death and we mainly think in naturalistic terms and we promote the self in so many ways and because of all of that and more we each now do more naturally just buy into the lie that you know what I think I'm fine on my own and even for us as Christians, we are all subtly influenced by that cultural thinking as well. This, this self-exalting, self I'm, I'm kind of fine on my own idea. But really, true, church, the truth is we are not so great on our own. Rather, this truly is us. And I think we almost all feel the reality of this to some degree deep down in our most sober, quiet moments. We, we know who we are. Because on our own, again, we are separated from the true life of God. We are spiritually dead. We are without hope on our own. We're following the ways that we were never meant to live, worse than we know. And we therefore are destined on our own for God's right judgment. And so, that's the first section here on who we really are on our own. But the good news is, the passage doesn't end there. It could have, in a sense. That, that could have been us. And we could have all just received what we deserved. But God. And really, you can see, that's actually the first two words in verse 4 and of this whole section. But God. And those are two of the greatest transition words in any paragraph in the whole Bible. Because that's us. Verses 1 through 3. But God. And so now for the second section of ours, when I'll see what God did for us. And let's be clear. This is really what God did for us in spite of us. Because think about it, after verses 1 through 3, we can't think that he's about to do any of this because of what we've done for him. Right? There's no exchanging going on here. There can't be. We're dead, deserving wrath with nothing spiritually to offer. And so if God comes in and decides to do something, it's going to have to be him freely doing it on his own because of who he is, not because of who we are. And that's what we see in the gospel. And so now, let's continue on and marvel at who our God is and what he's done for sinners like us. And we'll start in just verse 4. So that's us on our own. But now, verse 4, church. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. And we'll stop there. 
So think of this verse this way. So before we even get to what God actually did for us in verse 5, What's so great here in verse 4 is that we are first zoomed in to actually see who God is in himself. What's he like? And who is he and what's he like? Well, there's two clear realities here about God, right? Number one, but God being rich in mercy. And that's a beautiful phrase because mercy is just this heartfelt feeling of treating someone better than they could ever deserve, especially when they're in suffering, even deserve suffering. And so the idea is God is merciful like that. He's a God of mercy. He's even rich in that mercy. That's the living God. So that's the first thing about him here. But then number two, as you can see, that mercy here actually in a way flows out of something else in God. And what's that? Well, quote, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And so we have mercy, but now we have mercy flowing out of God's love. And really, church, That's who our God is. That's who the only God of the universe is. He's a God of mercy because he's a God of such love. And not just trickling love, but great love. And love that he has pointed in our direction. He loved us. And so that's verse 4. And before we do even read on now into verse 5, and we see what God then did out of such mercy and love, I do think we each now just need to pause for a second and ask, do I really think of God that way? Do I really think of God that way? Because let's be honest, because of verses 1 through 3 in the human condition, what is so natural for us is to assume, because of our guilt, that God must be this just huge, awful being who sees all our wrongs and must hate us. Or, interestingly, on the flip side, because of sin and our natural anti-God thinking, we also might be prone to think that really God is the bad one. But church, let me just tell you, hear this from God's word. Both of those are not true. God isn't harsh, nor is God the bad one. Instead, yes, God is absolutely just, and we should feel what we deserve after verses one through three, but then also we are supposed to be blown away by verse four here, seeing that, and yet, in spite of us, God, the one who made us, is greater and better than we could have ever imagined. He's merciful, rich in mercy, and he really has such great love for you, for us. It's amazing. He's amazing. So that's verse 4, which finally on this section leads to the center of this whole paragraph, and that's verses 5 and 6. And so now let's read those together. So verses 1 through 3 are us, but God... And this is an astonishing God. So what do he do? Verses five and six. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I know there's a lot in here, in there, but just try to follow the thought and the beauty and the reality of all of that with me because we can get caught up in the trees, if you will, of some of the phrases and ideas there and hopefully we'll try to explain all of it. But looking at the forest of those two verses, just ask, what do we see here in verses five through six? And we'll notice the emphasis is clearly on Jesus, right? On Christ and what happened with him. And then for us, what God basically did is he connected us with him, with Christ. Do you see that? 
And I know that may sound confusing at first, but this is now where we see the gospel because here's the point. So we're dead in our sins, right? Doing all this, not wanting God, deserving nothing good from God. But what about God? Well, first we hear about how merciful and loving he is toward us, which then makes him do something about our situation. What does he do? Well, he makes us alive with Christ. He raises us with Christ. He seats us in the heavenly places in Christ and with Christ. And I emphasize with Christ in all of those because if you look closely, you can notice Paul here says that three times. Three times saying with Christ or with him. And why? Well, because the point is Paul here is bringing us back to history. To how Jesus of Nazareth, the long-awaited Messiah King and God himself, he came and he lived a perfect life and he died for us and he rose and he now reigns. And Paul in God's word is saying, because you were spiritually dead, you couldn't do anything, God in his mercy sent his son and Jesus did it all for you. Because Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection did all that you needed to be forgiven and made alive now and forever. And so you and I were spiritually dead, but now you're in my spiritual and forever life are being raised from the deadness of our sin to life. It now consists in being connected to Jesus and what he did and who he is. You see that? It's all with Christ and in Christ. And that's why this is the gospel, the, the good news, because first, this is good news because this then is the answer, if you're thinking, to the biggest issue with us, right? To our deadness and our following of the ways of the world, the devil, and whatever we want. How does all that get forgiven and made right? And how, how do we have true life again in a relationship with the living God? Well, apparently not by our own doings, nor by reversing ourselves, but by Jesus. And what he did in us being connected to him. See that? And that's good. Because that means we, we don't do this, nor do we earn this. Instead, Jesus did it. But then also, let's be really clear. This is good news. Because importantly, this is not just some religious sounding spiritual mumbo jumbo either. And we need to know that. Instead, really, this is history because Jesus in history really did come and live and die and rise. And so for you and I, the point is we can look at that, that history and say, and that's why and that's proof that I'm truly forgiven and alive and will be in glory forever. Because in basic, that's, that's what the Bible's getting at. Even when we were dead, Jesus came, died for our sins, paid them in full. And so when Jesus rose, God did all that was needed to be done to make anyone who trusts in Jesus alive again with him. God raised us with Christ. And in a sense, God has even already seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, the Bible says, which just means our true identity now, church, is not in the form of this world, but our citizenship, as the Bible says elsewhere, is in heaven where God is, where Jesus is. And remember, one day, Jesus and heaven are going to come back here. But for now, again, the point is connected to Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, we have true life. Meaning, yes, you and I as Christians still for now struggle with sin. And yes, this isn't all complete. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. But really, because we are in Jesus, we have been raised from our deadness and given true life. And so that's most of verses 5 and 6. But then there's one more thing in these verses. You can see it. And that's as you noticed how Paul, in the midst of all of that, almost grammatically interrupts himself. And he juts in and adds in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. 
And now, why does he do that? Well, because now we see why we get all this. And why is it? Well, again, it's not because we deserved it or earned it, but it is because of grace. And quickly, that, that there is one of the things that makes the Christian gospel so unique and so different from anything in the world. Because we are worse off than we know. We're not spiritually weak or limping, but we're dead. But God is more loving and better than we could have imagined. And how do we know that? Well, in basic, because of what Jesus did, which shows us that in God's plan, the ultimate storyline of the universe is not about us and our amazing doings for God, but instead it really is about God and his love and him basically giving us one massive gift. Right, that, that's really what it's all about. God loves sinners and gives us a massive gift. Because just so you know, grace and gift are very uh, related words in the original language. And honestly, that's why, church, we all innately love being tra- treated better than we could ever deserve. It's why you and I all take much more joy deep down, not in earning and deserving things, as much as being given gifts. All because really the one main storyline of the universe is not about us making up our wrongs and limping our way back to God and impressing him and others with our service or exalting our tiny fleeting selves. Instead, again, this universe and our history all really is ultimately about God being so loving and merciful that he sees us in our willful plight and instead of turning away, which we deserve, He gives this huge gift to us. To us who naturally hate him on our own. And that gift is this salvation, this restoration, this life in Jesus. And it even is him giving us himself. By grace and by grace alone, we've been saved. So that's our second section, which finally leads us to our third. For this now, we're going to be in verses 7 through 10. And we'll see why God did what he did. And concerning why in these verses here, we're basically going to see three reasons why or or three intended results of the gospel. And the first we're going to see in verse 7. Verse 7. And let's be clear. Before we even read it, this is the very first answer given as to why God did what he did. And you can see that in how verse 7 is actually going to begin with, so that. And so on that, just quickly, just ask yourself, before we even read this, if you were to give a knee-jerk, so that response to why God did the gospel... What would you say? Because in answer to that, I'm sure we could say a lot of things, right? So that we can be forgiven or or so that we can live for him or something like that. But now, notice in God's word what he right away says. So now look down at verse 7. We'll actually start in the middle of verse 5 just for context. So by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So I know that may sound like a lot, but genuinely, let me say, this verse 7 is easily my single favorite verse in the whole Bible to explain what forever is going to be like. And I don't just say what heaven will be like, because remember, Jesus is going to come back here and forever is going to be us living with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, meaning heaven and God or coming here. That's the end of the Bible. But but, but what will that be like? Well, this verse 7 describes it. And importantly, remember the so that, meaning this is why God did what he did. You get that? The gospel's for this. 
And thinking of it this way, you're going to see this is incredible, absolutely incredible. And why? Well, because keep your eyes on verse 7. Why did God so mercifully and lovingly accomplish the gospel and make you and me alive? Well, so that in the coming ages, meaning there are ages plural to come. And I really believe that. I, I think that we're led to believe that biblically eternity is going to be something like ages, successive ages. That's what forever and ever literally means. And so there might be this age is characterized by this, followed up by that age. We don't really know. But ages, so that in the coming ages, he, God, might show. And so in those ages, God wants to show us something. And what does he want to show? Well, quote, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. I mean, do you hear that? So why did God do all of this? Well, so that in ages and ages and ages to come, he might show to us the immeasurable riches. That's why eternity is going to be forever because God's riches are immeasurable. They're infinite. And they're the immeasurable riches of his grace. And so these riches are about how he is going to over and over treat us better than we can ever imagine and lavish us with gifts. And then there are immeasurable riches and grace and kindness. Meaning all of this is based on the fact that God is genuinely being kind and he really loves us. And then finally, this will all be, quote, toward you and I in Christ Jesus. Meaning you and I will get that forever and ages and ages and ages from God, not because we earn it, but because we're in Christ Jesus. And so that's just verse 7. And really, each one of those ideas could have been dug into a lot further. But even so, I just hope you see the immensity and incredibleness of that. And remember, the Bible is saying, that's why God saved us. We've got to think that way. He saved us so that he is going to show us in ages and ages to come his immeasurable grace and kindness. He's going to do that, church, in more ways than we can imagine. It's going to be better than we can even fathom. And so that's the first reason why God did what he did which now leads to the second. And this is now in verses 8 and 9. So look there now. Continuing on, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So more time could be spent on this, but you can see the emphasis here again is on grace, right? How this isn't our doing, but it's all a gift. And briefly, in case you are wondering, what is this gift that Paul has in mind when he says at the end of verse 8, it is the gift of God? Well, just so you know, if you're curious, in the original language, that answer is actually more obvious than it is in English because in the original Greek, the word it can't just be referring to the word grace, nor can it just be referring to the word faith. Instead, the whole gift of God, think of it this way, the whole gift of God is that we are saved by grace through faith. That's the it. And the point then is the whole gospel and each of your and my acceptings of the gospel, God's grace received by our faith, that whole thing is a gift. Which just show us quickly, church, that even our faith is part of that gift then. Meaning, I hope you know, God gets the glory for all of this. He gets the glory for how he loved us. He gets the glory for what he did in Jesus. And he gets the glory that he leads any of us to ever embrace and accept Jesus, to trust Jesus. And the emphasis here is, and he did it that way. The answer, another answer as to why, is so that we won't boast in ourselves, but we're people who receive his gift. Which again, is better for us anyway, because, because who's happier, right? The person who thinks they're on a pedestal and, and looks at themselves all the time and focuses so much on their accomplishments, 
or the person who is given a massive gift they never saw coming, something they know they couldn't earn or buy, and who lives for something bigger than themselves, which means so much to them. You and I all know we are so much happier with gifts, not boasting in ourselves, and so God saves us like this for that second reason. Which finally leads us to the third and last answer here as to why. And this, for this, will now finally be in verse 10. So look down the last verse, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So maybe what's most fascinating about that final verse is that word workmanship, workmanship. And it's an awkward word to translate because it only shows up one other time in the whole New Testament. And that's in Romans 1.20 by Paul as well. But that time, Paul uses that word to describe God's big work of creation that we all now live in. And that's helpful to know because why then does he use that word here? This word which is basically a special way of talking about creation? Well, because this then finally is the last reason here why God did all this for us. Because finally, the point here then is, just like God, church, created this whole huge creation, and us in it, and yet we fell. So now in the gospel, he is making a second creation. He's, he's recreating. He, he's starting to make everything right and beautiful again, but even better. And he showed us that first, actually, in Jesus and his historical resurrection. But the point here is, and yet also he's doing that, and he one day will totally do that with us. With us. Like he created all of this in Genesis 1, so in the gospel he recreates. And he recreates us. And quickly, church, that matters for us concerning forever because that means, think about it, it means that you and I, made new in Jesus, we are already aligned in a sense with the new creation to come. It's actually pretty amazing. But then also, it matters for us here and now as well because in short, that means that if this is who we are, God's workmanship, then we should live like it. Right? That's really the point. Because you can notice that's actually how this passage ends in Ephesians 2. It says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And notice, if you're paying attention, that now really does bring this whole paragraph of Ephesians 1 through 10 full circle, doesn't it? Because remember, in verse 2, in our deadness, we once walked a certain way. But now here, after being made alive and recreated anew by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone and our good, what's the only thing that makes sense? Well, that we walk differently. <laughs> and so we do. In the gospel, we are loved, saved, secure, and made new and alive in Jesus. And so we get to walk differently. And we even get to walk in the ways that the same God who accomplished this gospel for us, he's already prepared ways for you and I to walk in. So that's that whole passage, church, and I hope you now see it now. That is a beautiful, stunning description of the gospel. Which finally for us this morning leads to one last thing, one last thing. And this now, as we close... And just briefly mentioning that that is all really true. That's who we are. That's who God is and what he's done. But the one last thing that we need to just make really clear that we see and all understand for you and me is that to individually receive all of that and to make it personal, we really must believe and trust in Jesus. Right? We believe and trust God and Jesus for all of us and that's it. And, and now, honestly, on that, you, you might have this morning been surprised 
at how little we talked about that, how, and how little we talked about how we must receive this gospel by faith. And in some ways, it's true that we, we could have talked a lot more about that. But I wanted to make this idea of our faith something we talk about last, and I wanted to not make it a main point of this whole message, because to be honest, you're in my faith, I want you to see this, actually isn't that central in this paragraph. It isn't. And to prove that, this is pretty fascinating. So we've now covered this whole passage. And in this paragraph, there's 206 words in the ESV. I counted this week. And there's a lot here, right, in this paragraph on the gospel. And often, let's be honest, when we tell the gospel to people, we sometimes still emphasize faith, faith, faith. We say the gospel is Jesus and believing in Jesus, as if it's like 50-50. And yet here in this passage, I want you to see, guess what? The word faith or the idea of belief only occurs once. In verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's it. Out of 206 words all about the gospel, faith shows up once. And now, I say that not to say that faith doesn't matter. Man, of course it really does. But church, the way that we approach the gospel should be a lot more like we see in God's word here from Paul. And how is that? Well, by really thinking and talking so much about the good news itself. Meaning first, by showing who we are really, all really are on our own. And then second, by mainly putting God on display and his love and what he did in history in Jesus. And then perhaps by saying why God did what he did. Because we do that because then and only then, since all of that is true, since all that's so wonderful and too good to fathom and solves our deepest need, the point is then and only then, once we get all of that, only then does it make fit or fit and make sense to, in our hearts and mind, really receive it. To trust God, to of course believe it. And again, that, that is how you and I should approach this gospel for ourselves and for when we tell it to others. Because technically, this is not centrally about your and my faith. I want you to hear it. Christianity is not mainly about your and my faith. Instead, it's about this God, this Jesus, this good news. And you and I are mainly to be amazed by it. And then only then do we, of course, receive it and trust God in it. And so finally for us, let's just make sure we've personally done that. Meaning if you've never done that before, maybe you do feel your heart stirring this morning and perhaps you do decide to genuinely trust Jesus for the first time in your life. Or on the other hand, for those of us who already have trusted in Jesus for us, let's just make sure we hear this and keep trusting Jesus because of the gospel. Because really one last time, church, this is who our God is. This is the gospel. We are alive and saved and have peace now and forever by grace alone and Jesus alone, by God's mercy and love alone, through faith alone. And so for us, let's just keep believing this and loving the good news and then living accordingly as the new creations that we are. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.